So much of the trouble is because I am a woman. To me, it seems a very terrible thing to be a woman. That's not me talking. I love being a woman. I get to raise two kids and get paid 87 cents to the dollar. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> and as long as I'm not home alone, I can tolerate watching The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> no, uh, that's a quote from the diary of Ruth Fulton Benedict, the renowned American anthropologist. She was born in 1887 and she died in 1948. Anthropology is, of course, the study of humanity and there's some debate about whether it is actually a science. Now, the NASA website tells me that science is observing the world, watching and listening, observing and recording, which makes me want to take out restraining orders against all my scientist friends. Uh, <laughs> But, but it also tells me that observing and recording things about human beings counts as a science, as long as you're not specialising in ex-partners. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of it is very wrong, <laughs> just to warn you at the, at the top. Uh, Ruth spent her early years on a farm in upstate New York. Um, she had, was of old American farming stock, um, six of her ancestors had fought in the Revolutionary War. Her mum was a school teacher who had very unusually for that time attended uh, university. Her father, um, who died when Ruth was only 21 months old, had been a homeopathic physician and surgeon. He actually um, contracted the illness that killed him while he was performing a surgery. Ruth idealised him, although she knew only a little of what he was actually like. She later reflected, From my earliest childhood, I recognised two worlds. The world of my father, which was the world of death, and which was beautiful, and the world of her mother, of confusion and explosive weeping, which I repudiated. In the Victorian era, people were fascinated by death. Uh, they had picnics at cemeteries, they made jewellery from the hair of loved ones who had passed away. So her romanticisation of death was not unusual, but she resented what she called her mother's cult of grief. Ruth described herself as a physically and emotionally aloof child. She would often daydream and retreat into her imagination. She said, I have always used the world of make-believe with a certain desperation which would have made her a perfect press secretary for the Trump administration, uh, but, but not such a good fit for a 19th century farmhouse uh, where there was an emphasis on pragmatism and hard work. She had tantrums and she ran away. She had episodes of vomiting and illness, and at times she had episodes of depression. As, a me as an infant, she contracted measles and she developed a hearing problem because of that illness. But her hearing problem wasn't actually discovered until she started school. She remained partially deaf for her entire life. As a child, she felt like an outsider in her family, especially compared to her little sister Marjorie, who was always praised for her beauty and who didn't have any of the behavioural problems that Ruth did. Um, and she just refused to embrace the cardinal values that were pressed on women during the Victorian era, 
values of purity, piety, submissiveness, and domesticity. She went on to attend Vassar College, uh, the same university her mother had studied at, and she majored in literature. When Ruth was at uni, romantic friendships were in vogue. Uh, they had these really cute terms for them. They were called smashes or crushes or spoons. Uh, and it, it was this common thing where there, was the, the, there were these elaborate courtship rituals between female college students where they exchanged letters and mementos and candy and even locks of hair. Uh, so for all the young people out there, uh, that's the one thing Tinder is missing, you know, this little function for exchanging your hair. Uh, hot tip. Um, <laughs> um, um, in the early 20th century, colleges like Vassar regularly held all-female dances where people could just smash um, as much as they wanted, I guess. Uh, in 1914, Ruth married Stanley Benedict um, and he went on to become a professor of biochemistry at Cornell Medical School. Um, but the marriage didn't work out and they divorced in 1931. Ruth was romantically linked with another prominent female anthropologist of the time, her student, Margaret Mead. Now, Mead said during the early years of her marriage, Ruth's marriage, when she had hoped for children, she continued to experiment very tentatively without any commitment with what her culture had to offer, dancing, literature, social work, biography, and poetry. If Ruth were alive today, the list would no doubt have included pottery, Pilates, and occasionally speaking at Labora's story. Uh, the culture did not yet offer kombucha homebrewing classes. Um, Ruth attended some lectures at the New School for Social Research, and then she did a course in anthropology. She went on to Columbia Grad School, uh, where she worked under Franz Boas, um, the father of American anthropology. And he was also a friend and like a father figure to Ruth, who uh, called him Papa Franz. Uh, she got her PhD in 1923, and she joined Columbia's teaching faculty. Fieldwork was very difficult for her because of her hearing impairment. So she often had to rely on work that others had done and conduct her anthropology practice at a distance. According to Margaret Mead, it was not until the medical evidence was definite that she would never have children that Ruth began to consider a greater commitment to anthropology. And not until her field trip to Pima in 1927, when she suddenly saw the possibility of viewing culture not only as a condition within which personality developed, but essentially like a personality writ large. That she assumed the responsibility of a genuine contribution to anthropological thinking, rather than simply doing chores for anthropology in return for the rewards of using anthropological thought in giving her a personal interpretation of life. Her biggest contribution to the field of anthropology was her book, Patterns of Culture. That book is one of the major intellectual works of the 20th century. It's been translated into 14 languages. And in that book, Ruth Benedict compares three different cultures. And the central idea is that culture tends to have a pattern or a configuration, like the personality of an individual, but on a grand scale. What she said was that 
the life history of the individual is first and foremost an accommodation to the patterns and standards traditionally handed down in his community. So within this meta-personality of a culture, individuals are either successes or misfits or outcasts or internet trolls. Um, and, you know, there was this description of her feelings for those who by age or sex or temperament or accidents of life history were out of the main current of their culture and needed special help. Patterns of culture advance the idea of cultural relativism, the idea that beliefs, customs and morals originate in culture and are not absolute. She also worked against racism within that rubric of understanding and appreciating cultural difference. With a colleague from the anthropology department at Columbia, she made a pamphlet called Races of Mankind. It was intended for American troops and it set out very simply the scientific case against racism. She's also known for her book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which is about the culture and society of Japan and incorporated the results of wartime research. That book's been criticized on some fronts, uh, but it's also been praised um, and it was very much of its time. Ruth Benedict didn't really fit the society that she was born into. She was of her culture and she was very much apart from her culture. She said, the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. And it seems that she did make it a little bit safer. Thank you. <laughs>